You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, you have some big news. What is happening? What is going on? I have big news because I have taken a new position at the University of Cambridge, where I will be the inaugural DeepMind Professor of Machine Learning. And so I'm starting there on 1st of October, which I'm extremely excited about. Congratulations, Neil. That is super exciting. So that's like amazing. And this this professorship, this chair has not existed before. You will be the first one ever in the history of this fancy old university. So, that's right. So I'm sort of seeing it up there with the Lucasian professor of mathematics, which of course Isaac Newton was the inaugural holder of, or the Bertrand Russell professorship of philosophy that I think Hugh Price is the, obviously it's entirely the same as all of those. No, um, it is. The, yeah, it's the best one. <laughs> the best one. It's the best one. So in this case... DeepMind have very kindly, they funded uh, chairs at um, the University of Cambridge. And uh, they've also, I think there's been adverts out for a chair at um, University College London, which are the places where Demis did his undergraduate and his uh, PhD work or postdoc work. Oh my God, that's postdoc work. They've been very kind in giving the money. So these are what's called benefactorial gifts. They endow a chair. So it's called an endowed chair, which is that they're giving a certain amount of money, the interest from which is sufficient to support the professorship and perhaps a little bit of money on top um ad infinitum in theory so um that that's that's the nature of the chair so, so it's, it's a great privilege to receive i think an endowed chair and it really was one of those opportunities i mean it, it's a dream i think for me the sort of thing you just i can't turn down that's awesome <laughs> well i couldn't <laughs> An offer you can't refuse. So are you starting a lab? Are you just going to like swan around and tell people they're doing things wrong? What's going to happen? What are you going to do? Well, I'm really good at the swanning around bit. Um, <laughs> it's in some sense, you know, um, there's, there's sort of more announcements to come, I think, uh, in early October, which will clarify a little bit about what I'm going to do, because there's uh, I've been very lucky that a few different there's there's this announcement now but there is there is you know sort of watch this space is is a little bit of it but i can give the broad thrust of of what i'm very interested in i feel and and maybe people maybe regular listeners to the podcast um have uh, got a sense of where that interest for me has been going so i sort of feel for the first i i don't know sort of 15 years of my career i i was running around wondering why people weren't using machine learning enough. These techniques seem really cool and useful and, you know, trying to fix the lack of use. Teaching the Open Data Science Initiative we did, Gaussian Process Summer School, um, uh, just trying to sort of make people understand how and where these techniques could be useful across a number of areas. I don't really need to be doing that anymore. It's it, it swung the other way. And the decision to go to Amazon, which... I just think there's an amazing place to work. I've learned so much there. That company is so focused on, you know, they have this, I, I can sort of now say this without sounding like, you know, I've drunk the Kool-Aid or, or maybe when I drank the Kool-Aid when I was there and there's still a lingering aftertaste. But 
I was absolutely convinced, you know, that, you know, I, I don't work there anymore. So I can say, you know, I wasn't willing to say these sort of things on talking machines when it's like, well, Neil's just paid by them. Their vision of customer obsession, of delivering innovation on behalf of customers. So the thing about Amazon is they, they, they like to portray themselves as a tech company because it brings people in and it makes sort of engineers want to work there and they do have some amazing technology and you know this is certainly not an amazon line you would hear but in my head they're not a tech company they're a customer company they don't care what the innovation is as long as it's helping customers they are entirely focused on customers and in that sense they're almost like the purest version of like what the corporate system says you should have is is, is something delivering for customers and in that respect, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence is super important to their agenda because it's important for their customers. It's not machine learning and AI for the sake of machine learning and AI. And of course, there's a part of me that, that believes in machine learning and AI for the sake of it. That's more like the academic side to my mind. But being enveloped in that world of how is this going to drive things forward for people? And, and you know, we use the word customers but fundamentally, it's about people. And, and, and you can translate the same idea to, you know, whether you're working in health, government, wherever. We do have this obsession with technology and we get carried away with the technology we're building and don't talk about the end effect. And whether it's always being done in that way at Amazon, that is the idea that you're constantly doing that. And I learned so much from that. It's just an extraordinary experience. And it was, I was very purposeful about choosing to go there to learn that stuff. Because once you are deploying that, you have to sort of see what are the effects of that being deployed in the real world. But by the same token, I think that businesses are necessarily and rightly much more short-term focused than you can be in academia because the sort of financial life cycle of a company is driven by quarters and years. And if you're not delivering results on that timescale, I know there's lots of wonderful research and DeepMind being an example of it that is sort of not held by these sort of earthly bonds of quarterly reports. But that was that is not the world of most people in business. And, you know... I think that you have to understand that world to understand how machine learning is going to be deployed. And that experience of three years of doing that at Amazon across things like Prime Air, um, less directly but indirectly with Alexa, and then finally sort of going all in with the supply chain team, which is just the most extraordinary, I would say it's the world's largest AI. I mean, this is the most extraordinary automated decision-making system. You know, the, the volume of predictions and automated purchasing that's going through that system is just amazing. But by the same token, I've always wanted to bring back those ideas and sort of steer where we go academically in order to address that need because because things have flipped. The, the challenges is not no longer sort of uh, explaining to people why they need these techniques. The challenge is they know they need these techniques. They are deploying those techniques. They are deploying those techniques uh, at a scale you know, across the world that is kind of unimaginable to us as academics. And there are downstream effects from doing that. And those downstream effects are best addressed by, I think, partnerships between academia and industry. And that's the sort of area I want to lead on. I want to lead on on, on looking at that and, and, and dealing with those implications with a good understanding of the technical side, with a good understanding of the deployment side, and bringing in some of the work um, 
that I've been doing on the ethical side, layers like data trusts, and using example applications from Data Science Africa, which has always been my sort of the biggest motivator of ideas in my head about what needs because when you have to do it end to end, when you have to go. I mean, and it's not always, certainly not me always doing this, but I'm, I'm talking to people who have been in the field with the farmer growing the cassava crops and, you know, designing the mobile phone application and then go into the Ministry of Agriculture and say, this is the distribution of cassava crop disease and we need to take action by distributing these breeds in, in these districts, um, which are resistant to this disease. Otherwise, this sort of uh, reserve crop that is there when there's drought will not be there when there's an extra drought. That is the full end-to-end -end pipeline of what we're trying to do. And, and Data Science Africa is just this most amazing way of seeing that pipeline so my aim is to i see, what do i see this as in general i see this as a paradigm shift for computer science and and i feel a little bit you know i'm very enthused about this so i hope it doesn't sound arrogant it probably does if i say it in a very british accent it will sound even more arrogant but i genuinely think that if machine learning is to be successful if the promise of ai is to be fulfilled it needs to be pervasive and that pervasiveness should be achieved through a revolution in the way that traditional computer science is perceived. And in particular, you can see this from the fracturing of what are sort of canonical standard laws of computer science in, in what we're doing. I mean, just the core principle of a computer system post sort of uh, Turing and uh, Neumann, the Neumann architectures, which integrated data and code within the sort of Turing machine is like I can read and write from a tape and I can write instructions that I'm going to read at a later time, right? That, that's the Turing machine idea. But in all uh, modern computer architectures that we deploy, we separate code and data. And we do that for security reasons. All the sort of the viruses and everything that uh, we have and are subjected to are coming around by sort of variants, maybe not all, but a large number of them are injecting code in through things that should be data. So SQL overruns are saying they're managing to write data to areas which should be code, and then the computer reads them as code and carries out the instructions of the virus. So that separation of data and code is sort of fundamental to security of the system. But what we're doing at the top level, there's many layers on top of that, many layers where that's being implemented. And now we're coming along with machine learning algorithms, and we're saying okay, now the data is going to write the code, or at least even if we're not learning online, we're going to have an evolving ecosystem around the code. And we've only tested this empirically in the lab, and we don't know necessarily that those conditions, particularly if we're deploying at scale, we may even be changing the system around us. So those those challenges uh, are very real. Like if you think about the challenges we're just having with security, which is staying on top of this um, separate data and code, when you're deploying in the real world and there's a potentially malicious environment, imagine those challenges when you're deploying machine learning systems that are attempting to either learn from their environment or they're using subsystems that are more difficult to verify or more difficult to comprehend. But I want to take a systems point of view on it. I just don't believe, you know, having seen this in action, that you're going to be able to go into every single group and say to every single software engineer, you must now take all of this into account every time you write a line of code. It's impossible for them. I mean, it, it seems impossible for me. It, this agenda is way bigger than anything I can imagine doing 
myself. So my agenda is to rally computer science around this and build architectures such that when people are deploying, that they're deploying in such a way that is safe and reliable. So they, they can ship a machine learning model in the full knowledge that this is being worried about on their behalf by the system into which they're shipping. And that vision for that really comes out of being at Data Science Africa and just seeing those folks are bright. They have no problem with the creation of a machine learning model. They have a better understanding of the application itself. They have no problem with doing an analysis, you know, after a little bit of teaching. They have no problem with writing apps or deploying sort of Internet of Things devices in fields. This is all stuff you can learn and do on your own. What they don't have access to is an ecosystem within which to deploy their models, which they understand is handling the movement of the data and ensuring that it's doing all the sort of testing and the monitoring. Because, you know, and it's been talked about in ML, if you don't have all that, you build up an enormous amount of technical debt. And that system of deployment is just not there yet. I mean, it's being done in patches of good practice, but it's not consistent. It has to be consistent across different areas. And I think the only way you can really address that is by bringing together computer scientists who have a deep understanding of systems thinking. And the Cambridge department is like world leading in that. They invented many of the techniques of virtualization that are being used across the cloud compute today and inspiring them with these ideas and, and getting them focused on what I see as a fundamental paradigm shift in the way we're doing computer science into the future. All the old lessons of computer science are going to be, have to be there and used, but I just think this, this use of data, data as software, is really changing the way that we're going to have to think of software engineering. I, I, I see that as a, a massive agenda. I, you know, I know other people have spoken about maybe parts of it or all of it, but I'd like to use this position as a sort of rallying cry to bring people together around that and, and start driving towards solving those solutions. But critically, it's, it's not just academia. We need deployment areas. I'll be focusing on data science Africa, but we need companies, startups, um, you know, to sort of come together and, and determine what this is. And it, it goes through to using, you know, what the software ecosystem you're using, things like streaming solutions like Apache Kafka and Apache Flink, which people are using for these things. But are they doing it in a way that is sensitive to the machine learning? And, you know, it's something I'm fond of saying is that the machine learning views the world of systems engineering has a, has a perspective on it that is sort of 20 years out of date, whereas systems engineering has, has, has moved very much with streaming systems to adapt to the modern era of big data. Machine learning thinks of batch data sets, and we need to close that gap. We need to close that gap. We need to close it rapidly because without rapid closing of that gap, we're going to continue making the errors of deployment at scale that lead to societal problems of the type we've seen over the last sort of five years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds it sounds monumentous. You're talking about changing the world, Neil. Yeah, and you know, I've had this odd sort of month where I sort of finished in. August, uh, late August, the 26th uh, at Amazon. And I've just been thinking about it and not being able to, you know, you've just heard, that's a massive outburst. <laughs> as, I, as, I, as it comes together in my head, where I've not been able to fully get excited about it because it's sort of not been public and, you know, uh, people have known. It, it's, I found, it, it's interesting in thinking about it, I found the weight of it intimidating. I see this as something that I'm so excited about this, but so intimidated about, 
the scale of what I'm talking about. And and by the way, the reason I can say all this and have this ridiculously overambitious vision is because I know that the community around me is there and ready to sort of get involved in these type of ideas and get enthused by the eyes, these ideas and back me up. And I don't have to carry this on my own. And I have seen the example of great inspirations like people like David Mackay, who, you know, way more capable than me and way more capable of doing these sort of things independently, who just sort of drove forward on what they saw was right and said, this is the direction I'm going to go in. And they made a significant difference. And, you know, I this is way bigger than anything I could possibly manage on my own. I just feel extremely lucky that I've been put in this position where hopefully I can provide leadership. And by leadership, I, I don't mean doing it all myself or any thing of that form i just mean enthusing people about these ideas and getting them engaged because certainly my thoughts on this are not the thoughts that are going to solve anything everything i i have I, i'm not an expert in systems engineering i have thoughts about it probably most of them are wrong uh, but i just feel this is an an urgent area we need to address it sounds amazing and it sounds like there's going to be some some really incredible stuff coming out of your efforts here. I mean, congratulations, Neil. Good job. Well done. You know, I, I hope so. Although, I, let me back up. Can I just say swanning around? Can I re-answer that? <laughs> you don't think that you swan I'd around, I'd like to Neil? go back. I just want to say swanning around. Mm, okay. All right. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, no, mainly it's going to be about swanning around and telling. Well, actually, to be honest, that is how I intend to carry this agenda out swanning around and telling people what to nice. do. Nice. Excellent. Good. Perfect. <laughs> That's how the world gets changed. More swanning around. Oh, More dear. dictatorial More mandates. More swanning around. Soft power, influence. I don't know. It, it's it's tough, but it's it's amazing. Yeah, It's, it's great when it works. Uh, and I, I just hope other people see the same things I do. I'm sure they will. And do you have any other appointments? Are you doing any like collaborations or, or, or other stuff that's going on with this move? Or is it just... So there's a bit of watch this space. I'm definitely retaining my visiting appointment university of sheffield sheffield is it's my spiritual home i mean i'm now in cambridge but i you know i was up there last week doing the gaussian process summer school and the, there was so much support uh, for what i was doing there and, and it really has molded a lot of the approach i take the, the spirit of the group we could create there i'm so desperate to make sure that as we build the group in cambridge we carry that spirit across so there's that side to it there's there's a little bit more to come on on how we're going to bring this about but maybe we'll save that uh for another episode that sounds great that sounds great. Well, well, we'll have uh, links to all of the materials that have been put together about the way that Neil is changing the universe on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Neil, you have been running around all over the place, like quite literally. And I think you just got back from Dali, right? Which is one of those super cool invitation only tiny little conferences in some place amazing in the world, right? Every year or most years, right? What is Dali, Neil? Where have you been? Um, Dali is, well, it's a, uh, the idea behind Dali is to try and recapture the spirit of the early NeurIPS conferences, in particular the workshops 
So it oh, was... you're an old timer. You're a, you're a take me back to 1986. You what? Old timer. You what want... we basically say is back in the old days, things were much better. And these youngsters, they don't really understand. So why don't we just get together? How good it can be when you were 30 yeah, dudes. No, it, it could be that. But actually, it's trying to capture something which is the sort of inclusivity of those early workshops. Because what used to happen was the size of the conference meant that on the workshop days, it wasn't always the case that there was a workshop specifically in your area of interest. So, you know, for many years, there wasn't a Gaussian process workshop. I would go to the broader kernel workshop or something. And then I would, oh, like, oh, tomorrow there's this workshop on causality. Let me go to that. So I sat in this workshop on causality in Whistler, you know, which, you know, where you had sort of Judea Pearl arguing with, you know, other people, all these these early days where where sort of the directions, I guess, which people went in were being forged. And I don't know how long ago that is. Let's say it's 15 years ago, maybe a little less. Of course, that gave me an awareness. Now, it's very difficult at the modern large conferences because, of course, there's now like four workshops where I have a core. Specifically the thing that are for you and maybe you're speaking at all of them. Yeah, well, I I try not to, but that can happen as well because people sort of say, (laughs) you don't know which workshops are going to be accepted. And so you say, oh, yeah, no, this is interesting for me. And that's that's great, but it, it means that you get this sort of narrowing of perspectives because you're not having dissenting voices in the room. I mean, I remember Sam Rowice, who unfortunately is is no longer with us, but Sam was this sort of person. He was one of the great drivers of machine learning in, in the early days. Very lucid, quick thinker, who was just an amazing teacher. If you ever have the chance you can one of the great things is is we have him recorded on 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 youtube i really urge you to go and watch sam speaking he had these interesting ideas like if you've got an hour-long talk spend first five minutes talking about something else you know something a little bit diverse so he you could see he's one of these people you know he lived and breathed the diversity of the early europe's years and he would just do this thing that i found slightly irritating at the time but in retrospect you know it was brilliant he would actually kind of just pop up in your workshop for the discussion session (laughs) sound off so you'd been talking all day about this thing and occasionally he might have just said a few things that we'd already talked about (laughs) but that was the sort of spirit of it you know that you could kind of do that and then be like oh that's just sam and you know that way of connecting people you know, which I think we miss, we miss so much. We miss Sam so much, but I think we also miss that connection. I mean, we've lost both of those things and, you know, we can't, we can't bring back Sam, but in some ways the spirit of Sam is in a meeting like this or the spirit of the early community, which I think Sam was very integrated with. So the idea in Dali is that we have workshops and and it is, it's an invitation conference, which there's severe potential difficulties with an invitation conference. What we try and do, though, is each year we invite workshop organizers and we ask them to, to send the invites out for the people they want to be there. So that's our approach to try and get the mix and, and not make it just about the, the old guard talking about the old days. But there is, you know, and you know, admittedly, there's an element of the old guard there. But if you, if you turn the numbers too large, you just get the same problem again. So that's an active problem that we look to address. But basically, we get together and try and recover that spirit and try and make sure so much of the modern machine learning community, 
I think the functioning of it is based on the bonds of trust between people who talked across these areas, understand each other's different perspectives that was formed in perhaps those early workshops. And if the next generation is going to have that, then 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 you need mechanisms like this. So I would say that's broadly the philosophy of Dali. That's I mean, Bernard Schulkopf was the main driver of it. Uh, it was sort of founded by Bernard. Thomas Hoffman, Zubin, and, and myself a, a few years ago. And it seems to be quite successful. Um, now, this year, uh, well, the last, the last Dali was actually in South Africa in um, January, early January. And there typically have been in Easter. But this year's event we decided to have in September because we just thought the the sort of year and four months was a bit too long a gap so we think okay we'll switch to a nine month schedule because that way we can do more of this and bring more people involved we also we found that going to south africa was a great way of reducing numbers and that that allowed us to get more a diverse range of people in again because sort of people want to come back so maybe going for nine months is, is quite a lot of organizational effort. So whether we'll be able to keep this up. And there was another thing going on, which is the launch of Ellis, the European Learning Network that Bernard's been a key driver of. There was Ellis themes are each having workshops. So they're themselves having workshops, which is trans-European workshops. So actually this year was sort of co-located with Ellis and it was in San Sebastian, which is just spectacular. I, I just think it's an amazing location. Of course, it's a little bit harder for U.S. people to get to, but at the same time, you know, it's it's a great place for the European community to get together. Nice. And so did you get a chance to organize anything this year or were you just were you just. So I was a late breaking organizer oh, because um, one of the th- things that happened is there were a lot of Ellis workshops. And, and I think Bernard uh, and I got a bit nervous that there wasn't enough Dali stuff going on. So uh, I um, spun up a workshop quite late on for a Dali workshop for the first day. And and actually, I kind of like the idea of the workshop, if I do say so myself. Hmm. And you can. Um, I think you can. I think you've earned that at this point. To be like pleased by the work that you do. There's something I invented that I like, but, but other people also liked it. I just That's want to good. clarify. That's good, Neil. That's validation. Uh, and again, it's, yeah, it's validation or or they didn't say that it was stupid in front of me is the alternative way of looking at that. Either your data set is skewed or these people liked it or they're lying to you. Either I have very polite friends. <laughs> and since most of them are computer scientists, that's unlikely. <laughs> so the notion of the workshop, again, in the spirit of what we're trying to do, I called it Hidden Gems. And the idea was to for people to talk about a piece of work that uh, they thought deserved more attention than it had got. So a sort of previously published piece of work that uh, they thought was important, but perhaps wasn't getting the citations. So th- that's the notion of hidden gems, that the, the work is a hidden gem. So like the, the paper that you keep in your back pocket is like, but this is a sort of a secret weapon and I'm going to pull this out whenever I need it. But like, other people don't know about it. Yeah, or just like, why isn't everyone talking about this? Isn't this a really important result? Oh, I love that. When you read a paper and you're like, this is brilliant. And then you're like, wait, or am I crazy? Am I an idiot? Or is this amazing? <laughs> is it me? Am I an idiot? Why is no one else? Yeah. The, the aim was to have 
lots of discussions. So 20 minutes of talk and 25 minutes of group discussion. And the workshop was quite small because there was a lot going on. I mean, I had to miss out on what sounded like a really amazing health workshop going on up the way. We had Jennifer Liskarten flying in over for that. So, so we do dip into the US community. And that was great to see Jennifer. She she's, uh, was also at Dali in South Africa. And uh, Michele van der Saar. When you say the workshop was quite small, I'm thinking of an Europe's workshop, which is where I've spent most of my like workshop time. And those are like 200 people. What do you mean when you mean quite small? Yeah, so I think that that's kind of actually a conference really, isn't it? And then that's kind of what's happened with Europe's workshops. Very hard to control, but it's still valuable. It's like a tiny conference. But we, So it used to be back in the day that, that you might organize a workshop at Europe's and there might be like seven people in the room. Now, but the point was they were the seven people that you wanted in the room, right? It wasn't like seven people who were just in the wrong place. It was like, and like we did this workshop. It was multi-output Gaussian process. It led to Maurizio Alvarez, my PhD student, organized it. And it led to a sort of tutorial paper on that work that's very highly cited today because we were very interested in multi-output kernel methods. Lorenzo Rosasco from the kernel side, us from the Gaussian process side. And we had people like Hans Wackernagel, who's from Geostatistics there, David Higdon from the statistics community. And then you're organizing the workshop, and there's only like 10 people in the room, but Tom Dietrich turns up, right? Tom Dietrich is an expert in, and you know, and that moment when Tom walks in the room, you're like, yeah, this is what it's about, you know, because Tom, you know, he's just, he's just got such great taste that like, you know, you just feel validated by his presence. And, 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 and when he turned up, he, he sat there the whole day and we learned so much from his knowledge. And, you know, I hope, I hope he got something about it. So you're talking, you know, like potentially six to 10 people. The speakers we had was Arthur Farragan, who's from University of Copenhagen. I think might be moving to DTU though. Sebastian Novitsin from Google Brain. Simo Saka, who's at Alto, Alto University. Soren Halberg from DTU, Azada Kalegi from Lancaster, Chris Watkins from Royal Holloway, and Carl Rasmussen from Cambridge. So a real sort of diversity of speakers, probably more biased towards people I know or people that are based in Europe, but that's kind of natural. You know, I just really enjoyed the conversations. I think if we'd organized it earlier, if uh, and I think now I've done this one and I think the format works, I think we can do even more to work on this format. And people did different things. The sort of intent was sort of to talk about something that had been a real driver for you. But the more junior researchers tended to talk a little bit about more about their own work. And I think that was absolutely fine. You know? Yeah. Well, you're, when you're, you're early in your career, you sort of don't have the luxury to explore as much as you might do later, right? Like you're, you're in desperate output mode, whereas later when you have more sort of, I don't know, security, you can, you can be more in explore mode. I think that's very well put. I think it's about, yeah, you, it's early career is about finding your own feet. I mean, people mature obviously at different rates because people are different, but in general, during your PhD, you're often, you're guided somewhat by a supervisor. And, you know, while you're driving individual ideas, the framework of those ideas is often coming from the supervisor. When you're a young academic, you're, you're actually trying to find that scaffolding yourself and find the directions in which you want to establish your name. And to some extent, you know, just like a child with its parents, you're trying to break away from your supervisor, but to some extent, obviously, you're influenced by that. And it takes a little while before you genuinely have a sense you're standing on your own two feet, and then you feel you can look around a bit more. So that's perfectly all right. And 
actually one of my so um asa and surin are actually uh partners and i invited them independently i didn't uh, so I've, I've known surin for quite a long time but i i didn't know that they had uh so since i've seen surin it's a bit embarrassing they've, they've had two young kids so they they couldn't <laughs> They couldn't attend at the same time, but we made sure we organized the schedule around because one was uh, looking after the kids. It's one of the nice things about Dali is we encourage um, people to attend with their partners and family. And if your partner happens to be in the field, you know, so the kids were there at, at lunch and <laughs> they were great. I don't think they were that interested in what I had to say, but, you know, it, you know, that's part of it. That's, that's, a, that's a good thing for them to be there. And they have a very little one. I think she was th- three months old. Yeah, so it was great. Now, Asa and Soren, Asa was talking about manifolds, which I do find very interesting personally. And I guess naturally there's a twist towards things I find interesting because I invited the speakers. And I guess she's probably more of a topologist than an ML person. And she was looking at uncertainty in the estimation of manifolds. Uh, Sebastian talked about a paper that was really interesting because Chris Holmes had brought it up. And it was when I went down to visit him and was chatting about that paper, we talked about um, on the marginal likelihood the other week. And Chris had mentioned this paper, Bootstrap Prediction and Bayesian Prediction under Misspecified Models, which is by, I think it's Fukumitsu. That paper's really interesting. I think it's a 2005 paper because what it says, and this is why Sebastian was so fascinated by it, he's, he's been looking at it and actually actively working on it, is that the bootstrap, which is a sort of frequentist statistical technique for acquiring error bars, will perform well as well as Bayesian prediction, classical Bayesian prediction, under certain conditions around the model, which I think might involve convexity of the model. I'm not sure that I remember that correctly. When the data you're looking at is within the class of models that you're considering under the Bayesian solution. So we call that when when the model is not misspecified. If the model is not misspecified, under, I think it's the predictive log likelihood measure that Bootstrap will perform at least as well as Bayesian prediction, which is an extraordinary sort of result, but it gets more extraordinary that if the model is misspecified so if one of the problems for bayesian inference and this is something that chris holmes is very interested in if the model is misspecified if the data doesn't actually come from the model under bayesian inference you don't expect to get necessarily oh that's what chris holmes's paper was partially about the objective bayesian prediction what happens under that case but what this paper shows is that the bootstrap will outperform Bayes in terms of predictive log likelihood on the test set. So, so that sounds very important. So, so just to reiterate, what is the bootstrap? The bootstrap is a sort of frequentist technique where um, instead of sort of doing uncertainty over your parameters, what you do is you fit multiple models to resampled versions of your data set. So what do I mean by that? So I take my data set and if I've got n data points, so 100 data points, let's say, I resample with replacements. So meaning I take a new version of that data set with 100 data points, but I take it by sampling at random from the original 100 data points. But when I sample at random, I put the examples back in once I've taken them out into the bag, if you see what I mean. So in my new data set, I'll typically have, well, 
statistically I'll almost always have many of those data points multiple times and some of those data points not at all. And then I train a model on that new data set and I do that multiple times. And this gives me multiple models. And now I can aggregate over those models and get a mean prediction and an aggregate prediction. Uh, and Leo Bryman was a great proponent of this for um, decision trees, which is something, and he called that bagging. And it leads to these sort of random forests and all these sort of things. Very interesting technique. But this theoretical result that sort of says that in, in some sense under these particular model classes is that this approach is dominating the Bayesian approach is connecting these two very different fields. The results about 14 years old and only has like 25 citations or something like that on Google Scholar. Now, I know that, that Chris Holmes had said that, that you can even go further and, and show this is true for something called the Bayesian bootstrap, which is like a smooth version of the bootstrap, which doesn't have some of its weaknesses. I was so excited about Sebastian presenting that because if I hadn't got enough speakers and had presented myself, that is the paper I would have liked to have presented had I had the time to read and digest it. So um, Sebastian did a way better job than, than I, I would have done. So I thought that was, that was one that really excited me. Simo Saka talked about Norbert Wiener's work and a report from around the Second World War called Wiener's Yellow Peril, which gives a lot of the foundations of Gaussian processes and time series smoothing and Kármán filters and really could be argued is sort of one of the foundational documents of the field of machine learning. Norbert Wiener... I, I, I think uh, it, it's not that widely understood his influence through cybernetics by, by the modern community, you know, because it's just sort of so long ago. It's sort of almost two academic generations ago. John McCarthy is sort of a generation after, and that's like even the 1950s, 60s, I guess, late 50s. So it's like four academic generations ago. And Simo's uh, got a brilliant couple of books out, one with Arno Solin and, and one um, on his own, I think, One's titled Bayesian filtering, and the other one is about stochastic differential equations, representations of smoothing models. He is such, these books are so clear at explaining these very technical concepts. I think they're both freely available as PDFs as well. And he's probably the individual I know that has the deepest understanding of the connections between all this work that in some sense became signal processing and control led to algorithms such as the Kármán filter that were used to get uh, lunar module to the moon and uh, reminding us of that and some of the ideas in that was what Simo talked about Chris Watkins is just like so Chris Watkins I, I talked about Sam earlier Chris is perhaps the counter embodiment I mean let's say that <laughs> this is a way of um so Sam is Canadian but but I would see his uh, was Canadian but I would see his approach as a sort of very North American approach very sort of forward I mean super eloquent Chris, I'd not thought of this before, but when I think about how much I valued hearing from people like Chris at these meetings and how you don't tend to see them, they, they get a bit diluted in the large modern community. He was another person I was super pleased to hear from. And he gave a fascinating talk on sort of um, that started from the perspective of Bayesian statistical deep learning and started talking about Monte Carlo sampling and relating it to genetic algorithms and developing a genetic algorithm that was itself a Monte Carlo sampler. Now, the challenge, I think, for researchers like Chris is their thinking is so broad and diverse and it's bringing so many ideas together 
the it's kind of consistently rejected by the classical reviewing mechanisms we have because there's no really reviewer that is it's it's like reviewing an elephant that classic thing you know you've got reviewers who are trunk experts tail experts and and sort of trunk experts and dustbin and trunk you know and it's like they're all saying oh it's not this thing and it's like no and chris is saying no I, i've created an elephant i've created an elephant and so of course if you actually get chris in person and hear about the elephant from him directly and he's so um he's got a very british style i think which is very sort of understated and very polite and attentive but his mind is so sharp that was just great to listen to and then finally uh, we also had carl rasmussen that that stuck in my mind I, I guess because again he was talking about tonya hagen's work on gaussian processes from the 70s but actually the point that we ended up discussing was how universally rejected those ideas were in the statistics community not universally rejected i mean the paper was accepted but it was a red paper and how controversial i would say those ideas were when uh, tony was presenting them i think in the 1970s at the royal statistical society and also um the fact that i think he uh, he fitted it to 21 data points which um required a matrix inverse of a matrix that was 21 by 21 which in in that era would have involved sort of going to the computer room and handing over a matrix on a piece of paper. I had this sort of image, this almost like Python-esque image of a sort of bloke in the storeroom and Tony O'Hagan going down and sort of handing over the piece of paper and the guy sort of scratching goes, well, I don't know about that, Gov. Looks like it might be low rank to me. Well, I'll see what I can do, but I'm not promising anything. Come back on Friday. I'll see if I can invert it for you. I'm not sure how it was done. <laughs> but in my mind, that's how it was done. Of course, that's why the technique wasn't practical at the time. But Carl talked about when he was introducing Gaussian processes into the community and he emailed Tony O'Hagan and said, well, this is an amazing technique. Sort of, you know, what happened to it? And well, Tony apparently replied, said, well, no one was interested and it wasn't so practical. And, and Tony did go back to it and has done a lot of work on emulation since then that I found very inspirational. But it really reminded you of like ideas are of their time, both culturally within the community and practically given the data available and the compute available. Although I do really like the idea of going down to the storeroom and Tony, Tony isn't like this, but in, in the Monty Python version of this, the person who was asking for the matrix to be inverse would obviously be quite posh. Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's John Cleese. So said, it's John Cleese with like <laughs> the bad hair. Yeah. <laughs> this matrix is a dead matrix. <laughs> it is low rank. It has no determinant. Are they in? And like, it's like it's the same scene as the uh, the dead parrot sketch, except like it's just kitted out with like fake o fake o computer <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Well, that would be when they were giving you a matrix. I don't know you at all. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah, true. No, yeah. yeah. Right. Reverse. This is the world that we should be aiming for. People say in AI we have the opportunity to dictate the future. <laughs> And I want that future to be Monty Python based. <laughs> I want the future to involve Monty Python sketches every time you fit a machine learning model. All of our all of our labeled data should just come from Monty Python and then we'll be fine. Then we will be truly creating the world that we want to see, which is four oh, white dear. dudes. <laughs> four white dudes making fun 
of British society. Yeah, actually, there's more than four of them. You know, they had a good. Uh, I think it's like six to eight. Oh, okay, okay, all right, six to eight white dudes. Yeah, I didn't. I know you caught me now. I have to name them: Terry Gilliam, Terry Jones, John Cleese, and, and Gilliam was American. You know, they allowed an American in. That's true. Um, and and some of them were from grammar schools. Do you know that they were from grammar schools? Graham Chapman, Michael Palin. Some of them were from the north. It's an amazing time, actually. It was reflecting an amazing time in British culture because although it looks very non-diverse to us. That generation was the first generation that was a product of a school system which gave opportunities to people who couldn't afford to pay to go to public schools, the grammar school system. Although by the 1969, it was being questioned, a, a system that, that made decisions about people uh, by the age of 11. So so people were split into, like, you're going to grammar school, you're going to secondary modern. And, and so, you know, so actually, interestingly, that was considered pretty diverse. For 1970s, nice, Britain. cool, and that, and then they had that that one woman that like John Cleese was married to every once in a while. Carol Chapman, Carol Chapman, have I got that right? Yes, uh, I thought, or, I thought yeah. it was Connie Booth. Connie Booth, yes, sorry, both Connie Booth. Uh, I'm getting confused between who was in um, all of everybody's wives. <laughs> no, who was in uh, Forty Towers and who was in uh, uh, Monty Python. And I think Carol was Connie Booth was in Faulty Towers and Carol Chapman. Was... Connie Booth was definitely in Faulty Towers and then would ev- every once in a while, I believe, appear in like scantily small, small amounts of clothing to be a prop in. Uh, yes, it's very wrong. Monty Python. I apologize for bringing up Monty Python now. <laughs> Damn it, Neil. Our Monty Python based AI ruled universe has just fallen apart. Come on, man. Stick with me. Yeah, yeah, it's not diverse. <laughs> not diverse. Yeah, we have to fast yeah, forward. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was, that was great. That was a really enjoyable workshop. Um, I think, you know, I sort of pulled it together sort of last minute. Oh, and I did mention there's Ada Kalegi, who also talked about, that was really great because she talked about um, sort of more coming from the statistical learning theory perspective and on online learning in the presence of long range dependencies. So that's where, you you have some sort of dependency in in a time series which is taking place over a, a very long time, and it was great to hear from her as well because that was really I I was slightly embarrassed in my diverse workshop bringing together all these different perspectives that so many people were talking about things that were almost directly in my area I guess with the exception of uh, Chris and Azeda and. The rest were almost things that like I could see myself working on or working on with a student. That's kind of one of the privileges of organizing workshops. It's kind of like organizing your own evening's television schedule. When that used to be a thing, before YouTube, I know you can do that now, but uh, there was a time when that was organized by someone else. So, you know, and it's to me the great pleasure of organizing a workshop that you do hear from some of the people you most admire. Awesome. We'll have more about Dali and the papers that we mentioned on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And if you have a way or have seen a way that people are keeping the spirit of Sam alive, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Benjamin Akira of Makerere University in Kampala. And when Neil got a chance to sit down with him at Data Science Africa, he asked him the first question that we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? I studied at Makerere University. And um, during my time at Makerere, I was 
was privileged to meet um, Dr. Ernest Mwebaze, who is currently heading the lab at Makerere. Through this, I happened to join the lab as an intern. Uh, that was uh, 2017. While I, while I was at the lab, I found myself and I, I discovered the, the large abundance of data that they were collecting. And um, with this data, we were doing some work uh, in machine learning, trying to do some predictive analytics, uh, especially in cassava. And cassava is this um, dominantly grown crop in Uganda and East Africa at large. And many people consume cassava because it is uh, called a security food crop. And uh, in times of drought or famine, most people rely on cassava. And because it is so dominant, we wanted to be able to do some kind of um, ad hoc surveillance. So people go around. Uh, we have this, uh, these farmers who are growing cassava around the country. And we had a grant that um, was helping us do surveillance of how people grow cassava, what kind of diseases they're facing. And um, through this data that is collected using mobile smartphones, we're able to have this very good understanding of real-time surveillance of uh, cassava diseases. So it's crop serving. But how did you get to Makerere? So are you from Kampala uh, originally? or? Uh... Yeah, so I am from the northern part of Uganda, which uh -huh. is uh, called uh, Kitgum. And uh, I, my family uh, stays in, in Kampala because I stay... But your home village is in the north? Yes, it is. How far north. to the north of Kampala? Uh, so it's about seven hours. Seven hours by car? Yeah, by car. By car. And uh, so that's like, what, 200 kilometers? Yep, Something around 200 like kilometers. Yeah. yeah. Is, that the, is that the mountain gorilla region? Or mm. that's to the west more? Uh, the mountain gorilla region is in the southwest. Southwest, yeah. Yeah, this is uh, the northern side, a uh, bit drier region of... Drier region. Yeah. Okay, so um, and did you do secondary school there or in Kampala? I did my secondary school in Kampala. And for secondary school, um, Makerere is it's the leading university, I'd say, yes, in uh, Uganda. And it has this history, along with the University of Nairobi, that yes. they all used to be colleges of the University of London. So they're yes. quite old. Yes. And I think Makerere has a history. Nairobi focused on engineering in Kenya. And Makerere focused on agriculture, yes. if I know well. Yes. So it's the most prestigious uh, university in Kampala, yes. oh, well, in Uganda. The computer science department opened relatively recently, is that right? Yes, that is true. So what steered you to choose software engineering as your degree? All right, so growing up, I had this, I was very fascinated by computers. And uh, so in, camp, uh, in Uganda at large, there were these uh, internet cafes, and everyone used to go to internet cafes to do things. <laughs> and this is before mobile, there weren't really mobile phones no, very common. Uh, mobile phones were common, but not, not, not to the normal Ugandan. This was more like, it was very expensive to own a mobile phone. But people were using computers to do things like printing. And also, uh, many teenagers used to play games on, on these computers. And I was among those kids who were into using computers for gaming and all of that. And through this interaction, I got to love and appreciate how computers work. In my secondary school, uh, when it was time to choose what course to do in university, computer science uh, was my first choice. And then software engineering was the second choice because these are two different courses at the university. And uh, I did not get computer science, but I got software engineering, which is actually the same curriculum. So. so what was the reason you didn't get computer science? Is there a different math requirement or what was the... Yes, yeah, so computer science required uh, you to have done... So I did physics, economics, and mathematics. Computer science required you to have done chemistry, I think. 
but it's, it's a very thin line because some people who have done economics still did computer science, but it was just kind of situation. The interesting thing about the department there is it's relatively new. So one thing with an established university is you get quite entrenched behaviors amongst the faculty because they've been there a long time. So yeah. what I think is amazing about the AI lab and the department there yeah. is it's this prestigious university, but it's very innovative and forward thinking. Mm -hmm. Is that something you knew about before you went there or did you, did you arrive and just find this ecosystem? Yeah, so I didn't know about it before I reached there, I arrived and learned and knew about it when I was in the university. So you just graduated recently. Yeah. So what year did you start at uh, um, McElroy? I started McElroy in 2014, 2014, that was my first year. And the first year is all about discovering yourself, trying to do multiple classes until you find something you're really interested in. Uh, so many students in McElroy go through, unfortunately, without really figuring out what they really want to do because there's an overwhelming uh, lot of topics. In our second year, we do computer science students do an internship, but in software engineering, it's in the third year. So in my second year, I met Ernest, and um, he encouraged me to, to join his lab in my third year during the internship period. Yeah. And uh, so in my third year, that was uh, 2016, I began the internship at uh, the AI lab, which uh, in turn was uh, one of the, great, uh, the organizers of the Data Science Africa. Yes. And it's during this internship period that I, I started attending the DSAs. Ernest, um, who who's, we've interviewed on Talking Machines, he um, uh, did his PhD shared between McCary and um, I think Groningen in the Netherlands and has focused on this cassava crop um, surveying. So he drew you in with that type of application for your internship. Yes. Now, I think that the first Data Science Africa you came to was in uh, Russia. Yes. Now, so first of all, like, so how was, what was the journey like from Kampala to Arusha? Because ah, I think you guys all took a bus, right? Yeah, yeah, so that's very interesting because um, flying into Arusha by plane was very expensive and I was a student and I really wanted to come to Data Science Africa. So we had to take a bus and um, uh, Arusha, Tanzania is a neighbor of Uganda to, from the western, uh, from the southern side of Uganda. But then going through the south was a bit uh, of a longer distance and we had to go through Kenya and then from Kenya into Tanzania. And the entire ride took about 12 hours. Yeah, so 12 hours. Uh, we, we got a bit held up at the border of uh, Kenya to Tanzania because our driver did not have a visa or a passport or something like that. And so we stayed at the border for about uh, four hours waiting to come into Arusha. But so that's what the great bit of the story is that yeah. the driver didn't have a visa or a passport, yeah, but you still know. managed to go there and just got delayed for four yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah. So the thing is, uh, the good thing about East Africa, I think it's um, it's easy to communicate between people. And yeah. uh, the, uh, so, so there is this new East African visa because the East African communities, is, um, they understand each other. So we got held up uh, at Namanga, which is the Kenya-Tanzania uh, border. But at the end of the day, we figured it out, they had an understanding and then... So, because there's an East African economic community, like yes. it's Kenya, Tanzania, and uh, Uganda, is yes. that all, or is that? Yeah, I think they're moving into trying to have Burundi oh. and uh, Rwanda into it, but I'm not really sure how far that went. I, I love that story. Yeah. That the whole team came down, the driver didn't have a passport, yeah, got yeah, through yeah. the border anyway. And then, uh, but that was your first exposure to some of these techniques. I presume you had sort of an understanding of Python and basic data analytics, because Makerere mm -hmm. is quite well set up for yeah. that. What do these meetings do to change your perspective on the directions you were taking? Yeah, so as a student in Macquarie, doing um, maybe data science and machine learning, you'll have this independent 
no sense of community because the community is very small. So moving into the data science Africa community helped me know how other people are doing data science or machine learning. And um, it is only through this that I began to appreciate the power of the community. Having collaborators from NMAIST, I met Dina, who was the host for that data science Africa. And, uh, and ever since then, we have been collaborating on different projects. I also learned, um, I, I got to meet experts and I got to meet uh, people who are working in industry and who are using uh, machine learning and these techniques in the real world. And uh, through this experience, I, I also got inspired and I said, I have to be part of this. And I decided to learn a lot and then also help the community grow in Uganda. And um, I began a mentorship program where I teach um, undergraduate students and fellow people in, who are interested in, in learning machine learning and data science. And I just began the first cohort uh, with uh, my colleague Claire and Jeremy. And I, it, has, it has taught me a lot uh, about teaching and uh, sharing the knowledge you have learned because I believe it is through sharing and teaching people that you actually learn a lot more. For the second uh, Data Science Africa that I attended was in Nyeri. I got the chance to present the work I had been working on at Macquarie University. And uh, I also got the chance to teach and become uh, a mentor to other people who are attending the, the conference, uh, the workshop. And also this Data Science Africa, I was again a tutor. So yeah, you were actually uh, doing the training. But yeah. the other thing, you've become very involved. So one of the great stories, I think, of Data Science Africa is the amount of commitment ARM have shown yeah. with uh, bringing Internet of Things devices and bringing education about how to deploy these sensors. Yeah. But that commitment is great from people who are 99% of the year not here, but you've really taken up the banner on that in uh, learning how to deploy and use these sensors in practice, right? Yes, yes, that is true. For the first Data Science Africa I attended, I was not really involved in the IoT device thing, but when I went to Data Science Africa in Nyeri uh, with Shira, uh, we began building these projects around uh, IoT devices, and uh, we went to this uh, conservatory at uh, the Dayton Kamathi Institute University. From here, we began tracking things like um, air pollution, seeing how animals move around the park, and all of this. And and uh, I, uh, my colleague Jared, who who is in Dikut, uh, continued with this project, and I think did this for his uh, my, uh, undergraduate final year project, and is actually presenting his work. And I also moved on with his skills and took them to Kampala, where we're trying to use Raspberry Pis to do some kind of quality air quality monitoring or. There's a big project now in Kampala. So, yeah. so there's the so Shira, who is um, uh, run ran the DSA in the area, is one of the founders. Um, has really driven forward this partnership with Arm, and they have sensors. The con uh, I always get the name. The Conservancy yeah. in uh, Dikut uh, is a sort of small area of land where they have zebra and wildebeest, and even uh, the leopard uh, yeah. was there. They have three llama there. One of the llama was killed by a leopard. The llama aren't native to Kenya, um, and uh, but they caught the leopard. Uh, they have many birds. So Shira has a number of projects around uh, acoustic monitoring, pollution monitoring, and I think they're building water level monitors yes. to sort of test these sensors and build this practice in the field where the field here is a bit of jungle that's on the campus. Yeah. Uh, so that's really fantastic because building that connection with other students at other institutes is building a sort of robust network and then you've been able to take that learning back to uh, Kampala. Yes, that is true. 
Yeah. So what, so what projects are you doing with the IoT in Kampala? Uh, so in Kampala, I am not really involved, but this is a project uh, the interns at the AI lab are working on. And they want to do some kind of radio monitoring to understand what farmers are um, calling into radio stations to maybe know what, what are the issues. Because in Uganda, just a bit of context, uh, we have these talk shows on radio where uh, people call in to talk about the issues they're facing. And our focus here is to understand what kind of problems the farmers have in regards to farming in general, agriculture. This is a yeah. collaboration with UN Global Pulse as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is a collaboration with the UN. So there's a very tight relationship between... So Global Pulse, my understanding is it was set up uh, the UN felt it was very responsive to um, events that are happening. And the, the idea of pulse is to sort of have a couple of fingers on the pulse and try and understand what natural disasters, when they're occurring, as they're emerging. So this very interesting project is about placing uh, Raspberry Pis around the country, listening to these local radio stations, yeah. which are, Twitter isn't that popular in Uganda, but these small, short talk shows locally are very popular. And uh, they use wake word detection, is that right? Yes, that is right. To try and detect words like flood or uh, um, hospital, yes. words that might trigger a conversation about a local problem. And then they, um, they cut out a snippet of sound around that and, and label yes. it, is that right? Yes. yes, that is right. So the UN Global Pulse Lab have done this in a, for a broader a problem, which is maybe community problems like the roads are flooded or... Edualiro, which means the hospitals are maybe full or I'm trying to get the hospital and something like that. But our focus here is just on agriculture. Right. So just the farmers specifically. Oh, yes. that's fascinating. Yes. Right. The, the, the Cassava project is, is an app which farmers can take into the field. This is your, the original project you interned on and monitor the quality of their crops because... Yes. As you said, it's uh, cassava is this. Um, it's an important crop because if there's a drought or anything, you can turn to cassava as a, um, a crop that survives the drought, lives for many years. So if it has problems, it's uh, potentially damaging. It's like the last barrier before famine, yeah. I, I suppose. Yes. So you've got that monitoring system now. I'm probably imagining too far ahead. Can you pull these systems together already or are they just going to be two independent systems, one with the farmers calling in and then the separate with the crop monitoring? Yes. So the one with the farmers calling in is a bit very early. It's in its very early stages. Uh, but what we have on the ground now, the AdServe app is collecting data right now. So what we want to do is use the radio data we're getting as something we can add on to the information we already have to have a better understanding because uh, these, these smartphones are, are common and they're cheap, which we're using, but they're not, uh, they're not rich everywhere. Not yeah. every part of the country is accessible. While radio, on the other hand, every region uh, at least has a radio station. Yeah. And many people call on these radio stations. So the smartphones, I think the cost now, or the last time I checked, is about $65 for a cheap yeah. Huawei or Samsung smartphone running mm -hmm. Android, which then I double checked, that's about the same cost as, say, a bicycle. Yes. So uh, bicycle, not everyone has a bicycle in a village, right? But, but if you can afford a bicycle, you, you could also afford a, a smartphone. Yes. But almost everyone has a, a feature phone, a, a cheaper. And these feature phones, they're, they're sort of standard phones, but often they might include something like WhatsApp or as part of the phone. They're not a smartphone. And, and that's, that's broadly right. Almost everyone has one. Yeah. So almost everyone has a features phone. And uh, some of these do not have are not running Android, but are running, I think, you can send messages and receive messages. 
but and also make phone calls. But almost all of these phones have the radio functionality. Ah, yeah, and that is what is built. important. Yeah. Ah. So if if at least everyone can listen to radio, even in the remote areas of Uganda, at least uh, it is what is used for entertainment. It is what people use to know what is happening because newspapers are not so common in the other remote areas of Uganda. They rely on radio to know what's going on. And although we have the smartphones, we want this radio and um, radio information we gather to be additive information that we can use to have a better generalization of the situation around the country. How many languages are we talking about that these radio stations yeah. are in? All right, so Uganda has about uh, 40 languages, and uh, the, main, the main one is Luganda, which everyone speaks, and is common around the central area of Uganda. But moving far north and uh, towards the north, we have uh, another, it's more like the Nilotic, Luo languages. Luo is different. It's way different. It's different from English. It's different from Luganda. And if we're able to know what people are talking about in Luo and what people are talking about in Luganda, and also in the southern parts of Uganda where people speak Runyankore, have all this information coming in and maybe build some speech recognition model, like you said, the wakeward uh, speech recognition models to extract these keywords. Uh, like in Luganda, things about food or uh, this new pest that is consuming the cassava crops or this new disease that no one understands, we can really have a better understanding. So the two predominant, is there also, is there a form of pidgin English used as well or not so much on the radio? On the radio. So Uganda has its own kind of English. Yeah. Um, most people speak, I think it's, it's really understandable. It's not based on maybe the language, not Luganda English or, yeah. or, or maybe actually English. It's just English. And everyone really understands it. It's not that complicated. Yeah. As long as... But is it common on the... I know you have to have different speech models because the accent's different. Yeah. Um, is that something that's broadly been resolved in the Global Pulse project already, that you've got some weight word detection and some capability to recognize speech in these under-resourced languages? Or is that something you're going to have to address as well? That is something we have to address. I, have, I wasn't really involved with the Pulse Lab project because this is something we're doing independently but still in collaboration with the Pulse Lab. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure if the Pulse Lab is still actively pursuing that project. But in our, in our case, we, we have to kind of build speech recognition models, first of all. And then once we have these baseline speech recognition models, then we can go ahead and try to extract the keywords whenever we hear them. And they're deployed app. on the Raspberry Pi? So we, we, have, we haven't really started this. It's still very early. Yeah. But we're thinking of uh, having these deployed on Raspberry Pis around the country and then being able to collect these. Because they have to be physically located in the area where the radio station is available. These are yes. very local radio stations. Yes. And there's no, like, people don't even know how many there are. Anyone yes. can set up a radio station, yes, yes, right? Yes. And just with a mast and off they go. Yeah. Yes, so, that's true. And that's fascinating. So what next? So, um, well, we've heard a bit about what DSA has meant to you. To me, uh, what it means to me to see a student who was an undergraduate in uh, when was uh, uh, Russia that 2017, mm -hmm. um, who's now teaching the students here at DSA 2019. I just think that's incredible. Obviously, I mean you're an exceptional individual managing to achieve all these things. What's next for you? What direction do you want to take it in? Yeah. So currently, I'm um, I'm I'm trying to learn and. Uh, learn as much as possible because there is a lot to learn. And uh, so what I'm pursuing now is trying to have an understanding of how things work in industry or 
in the real world. And then once I have this, then I can proceed to know what I want to work on for a master's and possibly PhD program. Yeah. Yeah, moving forward. And is it right, I, I, you've, you've had an internship application accepted for Mila? Yeah, so I was, I was lucky to have been accepted at the Montreal Institute for Learning Algorithms in uh, Yosha Benjia's lab, uh, which I am yet to begin. I think that's so exciting because what you see there is the bridging from being really on the ground to, I think, you know, what is unarguably one of the top places in the world to do machine learning. I, I think that's incredibly exciting. Benjamin, it's been really great to talk to you. Thanks so much for sharing all your experiences. Yeah, thank you Data for having Science me. Africa and, uh, and all the work you've been doing. Fantastic. Great. Thank you very much. Benjamin Akira. Well, that's it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.